Grace, Happy New Year, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I could say Happy New You. That's going to factor in too. Hopefully that'll be more clear by the time we're done here. And I do have a little unfinished business to conduct uh, with regard to our baptismal font. Now, some of you may have been here last month when we kind of broke it in, and we had our first baby baptized there, and uh, I gave a few explanatory words at that time, but there's some upgrades that I failed to mention, and uh, our um, person who looked over this whole project, Phil, was kind enough to point out some important details, so I'd like to bring you up to snuff on those, and um, it's a perfect occasion since we're celebrating the Lord's baptism. And it's all about numbers. So when you guys walk up for communion, you can take a closer look and check out those numbers. But it starts at the base, six-sided. Now, if anybody was here last time we talked about this, can you tell me what the six-sided base reminds us of? Creation, that's right. And in particular, on the sixth day, man was created. And that's the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day, but this is fallen man. He is exiled from paradise, cast out east of Eden with a cherub, cherubim with a um, flaming sword protecting the entrance back into Eden. So man is definitely in exile, and he is cursed to work the thorns and thistled uh, cursed creation by the sweat of his brow. So that is the sixth uh um, sided base that we have there. And the seventh day is the day of completion. That's the day of rest. But man does not ever quite enter into God's rest in his natural fallen state. Uh, he is laboring his whole life through. And for example, even by the time we get to the very last book of the Bible, all right, the book of Revelation, the number we still find there for man is uh, designated six. But it's six, 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 with the six repeating. Uh, and he can never get to that full, complete, heavenly number seven. And it's almost as if that six, 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 six just mocks man, who by his own efforts is only frustrated and never able to arrive at the perfect heavenly peace and rest. Seven. So... The solution for that is the three, and this is the part I failed to point out last time. But as you come up, you can see three panels or three pillars on which the table rests. And three, of course, reminds us of the Holy Trinity, our triune God. Very good. And there are solid wood pieces fashioned from a, uh, a choir pew, and the whole thing actually comes from the pews that we used to have back there. 50 years old or so, we got it from an Episcopalian church. Who knows how long those benches, those pews were at that church. So it could be close to 100 years of history we got built up in that baptismal font. And it's all held up by those three panels representing the Holy Trinity. So that's also why, by the way, why we have the Christ candle for his baptism lit. The whole Trinity makes the whole thing happen, and without the Trinity, nothing is going to happen. So now here's the exciting part. Because the three-in-one triune God not only does a man who was 
was toiling under his own failing strength of six, right? Not only does our triune God graciously welcome fallen man to this Sabbath rest, Jesus Christ himself being our Sabbath rest, the seventh day, we rest in him, and there's even more to it than that. So you get up now to the top table of that baptismal font, and you discover there it's not seven sides to the top table. No, in fact, there are eight. We have an eight-sided top tier to our baptismal font. And this actually is quite customary of Christian baptismal fonts, that number eight is very special in that it puts us in mind, for one, um, of God's sign of circumcision on the eighth day, uh, the circumcision that our Lord himself went through. It marks Abraham and his descendants as God's covenant people, the sign of circumcision. Uh, it was also what the Apostle Paul from time to time would mention concerning himself as he was compliant with the Jewish law and tradition regarding circumcision on the eighth day. So this eight-sided font goes beyond uh, welcoming um, infant males because in Christ, who is the mediator of a new and of a better covenant, in Christ, this font welcomes both men and women of all ages. They're welcome to this holy sacrament of baptism um, as they wash in the waters of regeneration, as Paul tells Titus. And they're welcomed here to be called from the Most High, his sons and his daughters. What a blessing that is. So now I'm leaving something out here, though. Uh, some of you might remember that's very significant about this number eight, and it ties it in um, this octagonal face of the font, uh, ties it in with uh, the new and the old together. So when it comes to holy baptism, to what then? Does anybody know? Uh, to what do we specifically tie the number eight? Any guesses? Some of you know, I, I imagine. Um, crickets, that's all right. Uh, that, those are the eight who were with Noah and his seven family, seven uh, members and his family to recall that number eight. And that's the apostle Peter in the third chapter of his first epistle who writes about this. And you can pick up on it here as I read this section from 1 Peter 3. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might reconcile us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, eight persons were brought safely through water. Now, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Uh, that's the reading from St. Peter. The Apostle Peter makes a clear-cut connection then between baptism and Noah's ark. For most of my days as a believer in Christ, I had never heard that connection, never made that connection. So here, Peter connects the old with the new. Old Noah and his seven other family members on the ark amidst the sea of sin that God is judging, to be sure. But at the very same time, 
there is this other side to it all where all that sin, all that corruption and crime, as Genesis 6 describes it, every inclination of the thoughts of man and his heart were only evil all the time. All that evil, God was washing away and giving the human race mercifully another chance at life. And by the way, but for his grace and mercy, God could have very justifiably served up Noah and, yes, all eight of the, of the gang there. They're just desserts. They, too, could have received from the hand of God the wages of their sin, which is death. They could have been lumped in easily with the whole sea of sinful humanity because though the scripture calls Noah righteous, it's a relative righteous. It's kind of like God looking down and he sees all the evil and then he sees Noah and he's like, close enough. This one still prays to me. At least he acknowledges me. The righteousness spoken of Noah then and of Job and other Old Testament saints, Abraham, it's not an absolute spotless, sinless righteousness as we learn from later prophets like Isaiah as well as from the Apostle Paul and other New Testament writers. There are none who are righteous, no, not one. My goodness, for proof proof of this, just check in a little bit later with Noah, the drunkard. Now, granted, he had been through a lot, and maybe you and I would find a little solace in the bottle as well. But this was how he turns up later on uh, after the flood. And you can also just simply ask yourself, okay, how long did it take for this world that was just reset, right? Just after docking the ark, how long did it take for the earth to get all corrupt and sinful once again? And who was that common link, right, between the second chance mulligan world that Noah and his family were gifted and the unchecked, rampantly evil world before the flood? Who makes that connection between those two. I'll give you eight guesses. But the point here, uh, for some reason, despite man's inability not to sin, we can't stop sinning. God, nevertheless, so loved the world that he would still save some corrupt sinners anyway. And he's going to do it in such a way as to be both just and the justifier of him who has faith in his merciful kindness. That we know explicitly another Old Testament saint, Abraham, did have that kind of faith. And Paul tells the Romans just that. Abraham, far from being perfect, though he was um, nevertheless um, one who possessed faith. And Paul says, God credited that faith to him as righteousness. So it's a righteousness by faith that uh, Paul talks about all through the book of Romans. So this is the God, then, who forgives you. This is the God who is holy indeed, just, and he's perfectly, absolutely, even fiercely righteous without a shadow of turning, to quote James on it. And this God is going to find a way without compromising his pure holiness, not one iota. He's going to find a way to meet sinners right here, at this font, and forever rescue them from themselves, 
from an unbelieving generation and from all the demons in hell who want nothing more than to keep them hell-bound and faithless guile, all the sinners that come to this font. But this, our triune God, is going to take uh, us, essentially, we're going to approach to the font, quite zombie-like, like those who, quote, walk this world dead in trespasses and sins. That sounds kind of like a zombie to me. And that's how Paul describes the Ephesian Christians. And we're going to walk away from that font now, forgiven. We come to it zombie-like, dead in trespasses. We walk away forgiven and living a brand new beginning as a new creation in Christ, Christ being God's anointed one. So it's kind of like how Noah and his family must have felt when they finally opened the hatches, right? Opened all the windows and the doors of that stinky, dingy ark of salvation for all of all eight of them. So that number eight then, it points to the new creation, which Paul says, any man or woman who is in Christ is a new creation. And this is how he articulates it from our gospel reading. Uh, Romans 6, quote, We were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. There's that new life in Christ. Just imagine how it was for Noah and his family after months and months at sea to finally plant their bare feet squarely on terra firma, no more constant swaying, no more creaking, rocking of that floating giant zoo. The sea must have been something like um, our apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic uh, movies. Or in their, their case, it was just an epic tale. And we're still reading that story, aren't we? Genesis 6 through 9. But maybe it got a little shorter over the millennia of the oral tradition before it finally came to Moses' ears and he provided the written record for us. But nevertheless, it certainly has held its lasting impact, that story of Noah and the flood. Uh, It was told over and over again so long ago, and it was carried all the way into the church age, where we find it. And as early as 196 AD, the North African apologist, church father, Tertullian, uh, he's sometimes called the founder of Western theology, he compared the church to Noah's Ark. And the church has since also been known by its moniker, the Ark of Salvation. So to finish up with some keen insight from Martin Luther along these lines, uh, I'm going to pull out one of our newest hymnals. Uh, And as I do, I want everybody here just for a moment to actually look straight up, if you would, right up there. Just take a look at that up there. Uh, I want to invite everyone to fathom a guess as to what you see. Anybody want to describe what it looks like? (laughs) Very good. Absolutely. If you see what I see, do you see what I see? One of our Christmas songs we just sang. Uh, not a star, not a star, but an ark fashioned after a conception of Noah's ark, the ark of our salvation. It's God's rescue boat for us, the church. It's not the place that you'd want to fall over the sides from either. And to keep your walk steady, to keep your grip on the rails, 
Indeed, to keep the faith, the captain of this ship has ample supply of sustenance to nourish your faith all your life long for that full ride to crossing that finish line. It's not a far walk from the font to the rail where we receive our Lord's body and blood. There's always room for you at the rail. We'll squeeze you in as we go from one sacrament to the other to the Lord calling us home or coming to take us into his eternal kingdom. But it was the scene from our gospel lesson today, the wondrous scene of the baptism of our Lord Jesus himself by the hands of the confounded Baptist, John the Baptist, who didn't understand at first, but through the ages and with hindsight, with the Holy Spirit, and with the rest of Holy Scripture, the church has had some time now to contemplate the scene there, the heavens being torn open, the Father's voice, um, a vocalized claim that people could hear, that this is my Son. And it was not for anything the Son needed, but it was rather for our benefit. Jesus knew from eternity he was the Father's Son. And finally then, the Holy Spirit at the baptism of our Lord, like Noah's dove. You remember Noah's dove? Very peaceful, gentle bird, in contrast to the stormy skies that brought terror and the destruction to the earth back then, when the heavens were torn asunder and the floodwaters came crashing down. It was this wondrous scene then from our gospel lesson today, our Lord's baptism, that inspired Martin Luther's so-called baptismal flood prayer. Maybe some of you have heard about that. Long absent from our LCMS hymnals, many are glad to see that flood prayer by Martin Luther back again. And so uh, also I'm going to read it straight from our latest LCMS hymnal. And I encourage you to see in these words your own baptism and hear the Father's forgiving tone of voice claim you as his son, as his daughter, all because his truly righteous son, as one of us, incarnate, God among us, claimed your sin and claimed your spot in judgment from heaven. So let me close now with Luther's flood prayer. Let us pray, almighty and eternal God, According to your strict judgment, you condemned the unbelieving world through the flood. Yet according to your great mercy, you preserved believing Noah and his family, eight souls in all. You drowned hard-hearted Pharaoh and all his host in the Red Sea. You led your people Israel through the water on dry ground, foreshadowing this washing of holy baptism. Through the baptism in the Jordan of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, you sanctified and instituted all waters to be a blessed flood and a lavish washing away of sin. We pray that you would behold now this baptismal candidate according to your boundless mercy. Bless her with true faith by the Holy Spirit that through this saving flood all sin in her which has been inherited from Adam and which she has committed sins, would be drowned and would die. Grant that she be kept safe and secure in the holy ark of the Christian church, being separated from the multitude of unbelievers 
and serving your name at all times with a fervent spirit and a joyful hope, so that with all believers in your promise, she would be declared worthy of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I hope you saw yourself in that, because it indeed is true. Hear God's voice say to you, you are my son, you are my daughter, and because of Christ's baptism in which you are united, with which you are united, and in which you are clothed, you are forgiven, and you are that child of God whom he loves. Now may he who began that good work in you bring it all the way to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.